In our uh, walk through the Christian spiritual life, I want to ask you to turn this morning to, um, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Well, really four, but it's the last verse of four. Where Paul is... Um, just wrapped up a discussion about how to live, what it should be like that we walk in fellowship with God. For example, let's just back up to Ephesians 4.25. He says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's 4.25. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's 4.26. Do not give the devil an opportunity. So anger that is not checked somehow provides an occasion and an opportunity for a Christian where Satan can have some influence on your life, some destructive influence. Don't give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. This is all personal sin. Anger is a mental attitude sin. Um, Lying is a verbal sin. And now stealing, overt sin. So it's all categories of sin, which we've been studying. The Christian life is uh, to be empowered by the Spirit of God. We call that the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. But um, personal sin is kind of the opposite of the influence of the Spirit. So if we're walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, we will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh, which is to commit personal sins. And so he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he'll have something to share with one who has need. Rather than taking what someone else has and saying, well, I mean, they have enough and they won't even notice if I take a little something, something. It's okay. Just take a little, a little from the person who has a lot. No, it's the exact opposite mindset. No, you don't, because of your need, get to just take from someone else. Regardless of your need, you need to work to meet your need and then help someone else meet their need. Totally different way of thinking. I have to work hard to steal the way I do, though, says... Um, the politician. Anyway, um, the, uh, did anybody have any idea, any, any notion of anybody in the Bible that was a thief who then repented of theft and said no more? Judas, Judas, was a Judas yeah, Judas was, right, he was, held the money. and um, Now, he would be the, like a kind of a, a sad, tragic example because he might have felt bad about what he had done in selling Jesus. But um, he's the son of perdition. I mean, is there somebody that gets redeemed in the Bible that's a thief and then is no longer a thief? Okay, the thief's at the cross. Very good. Criminals at the cross. Thank you for saying what I was thinking. I like that game. Playing who, is there another one like Matthew that's not a disciple, not an apostle, but someone like Matthew that is a thief? Why is Matthew a thief? Yeah, Levi, the tax collector. That'd be a very Jewish name. He is, uh, they're selling, they're, they're um, Vichy, they're um, what are the, the, the people that worked against the French, the Frenchmen that, that worked for the Nazis, what were they called? Quislings, that's who they are. <laughs> they, 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 these Jews working for Rome to extort their own people. 
And they're like, well, it's just how it is. It's just the, it's the culture we're in. I got to make a living. I got to feed the kids. And so he justifies extorting his people because here's what happens. Rome exacts a tax and the tax collector is going to uh, take it up and record it, but they would also take more and say, you're going to have to pay me what I've got. And that's how they got paid in part. It was an understood part of the system, kind of like the Roman soldiers. They had their wages, but part of their wages were what they could get off the battlefield. So, um, so this is a horrible thing to be, and Levi the tax collector is a, a picture of God's grace. And notice, uh, he who steals must steal no more, no longer is part of the apostolic testimony about uh, Christians and their practices and their lives and their spiritual lives. And, um, well, I don't, I don't steal. I think sometimes we go into a retail mindset and say shoplifting or something. Well, I've never taken anything. Hey, let's, let's be clear. Who decides property? Who decides the property? The one who distributed it. How did that happen? Well, either you were given it, you worked and earned it, or you stole it. That's pretty much how you come into something. Oh, I found it. Okay, that's, yeah, you found something. That's nice. But in three of those, we would say God was operating. And in one of those, it's a disobedience of God to steal, to take what is someone else's. Well, they stole it. Well, that's, that's not your problem, right? You don't steal what someone else stole and say that's legitimate. See, the theft is the violation of the sovereign distribution of God. He's the creator and he's the giver. And I think it's really important for Christians in our day to embrace exactly what we mean because it's coming. The new justification for mass theft is in the offing. It's in the news. It is the Green New Deal. It is the idea every time someone says the extremely wealthy need to pay their fair share. You listen carefully for the challenge that they have property they're not entitled to and that we need to, as a, as a, as a collective, vote to take from them what we think they shouldn't have. And the problem with that mentality is it's evil. <laughs> it's, you didn't distribute that. You don't determine who deserves what. God is the distributor. And I'm not saying that, uh, that, that the extremely wealthy are working for God. In fact, generally they're not. That, but that's his problem. We're talking about the divine order of the distribution of assets. And this is something, when we talk about property, this is something that really will touch our spiritual lives as Americans or as human beings in this, in this day and age. We will worry about property, Okay. In, in, a, in an illicit way, because we'll forget where do we get it. The, the same mentality that says we don't steal because God is honoring that distribution so that each, everything anyone has is something you are now accountable to God for how you use. See, he, he gives these stewardship resources, whatever they are, however you receive them. Oh, I worked hard, but he gave you the hands and the energy and the brain to be able to work. So it's all back to God. So the same mentality that says we must never steal or tolerate theft will also say we must not steal in our hearts from God what belongs to Him in our own property. It's His. We are His. So if I'm going to make it about God on the one side, I'm going to make it about God on the other side. Do you see what I'm saying? It's all about Him. And so 
That's why the confiscatory taxation is evil. Because it stops free participants in this life from doing what they are doing before God with the property that is theirs. And who in the world is there to claim God's position to tell people what to do with their property? This is the problem of theft. So it's not just shoplifting or you know, five-finger discount or whatever. It's much bigger than that. It's a whole mindset of entitlement. And um, we should all be careful of it. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So now, I'm not only uh, fighting God on His distribution of resources, I'm representing Him with every word I say. Every word, every word. See, this is, con- this is it, rightly taken, every verse of the Bible will challenge you. Did I grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption? A summary of the effects in your spiritual life of these kinds of sin patterns, the, the, the decisions we make to disobey God. There's a grieving of the Holy Spirit. Let bitterness, wrath, anger, sorry, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I think that the problem of the tongue is connected to the problem of the heart, obviously, what you think you end up saying. And I'm not really clear on all the psychological motivations behind gossip or slander, but I am clear on what the Bible says about gossip and slander. These sins of the tongue are devastating to others and to the person that commits them. And it is unchristian. For us to just have to share this information, whatever it is. If you have recently been the recipient on the receiving end of gossip where someone spoke about you behind your back and it came back to you, uh, you probably had a couple of thoughts like, why is this even something this person's talking about? What benefit is it to anyone? That's the first. And that's why it bothers us when someone gossips. It bothers us even more when someone slanders us because it isn't true. But the problem I've got is why do we need to say it? Why? I believe. Now, I told you I don't know all the vagaries of the psychology, but I think it comes from a sense of inadequacy. I really do. I think that there's in myself. If I go, oh, I've got to say something. It's probably either some sort of deflection from my own weaknesses or my own inadequacies where I've got to talk about someone else's, you know, trying to make myself feel better about myself by helping everyone else see how someone else is. Isn't that petty and sad? But that's how, that's how gossip works. Or just a morbid fixation on evil. If it's an evil thing that I'm talking about, oh, I just have to say it. Mm, so good to say. Why? Why? It, it, it could just be that we're sinful and we want to, uh, to do the thing we shouldn't do. Slander, though, is, um, is devastating because now it isn't sharing your dirty laundry that is true with someone else that doesn't need to know it, which is bad enough. Now it's painting a picture in someone else's mind of you that isn't true. What's interesting to me is sometimes, I think a lot of times, people slander when they think they're just gossiping. Huh? They slander when they think they're just gossiping. Well, I heard this happened. 
Well, it didn't happen. So you think you're just sharing a juicy tidbit, but you're actually lying about the person. Oh, I, I didn't lie. The other person, 15 people down the chain lied. I didn't lie about it. I was just, I was just reporting the news. Once upon a time in American history, the news anchor was a legitimate person because they were just telling you the facts. Not, they were never that. They were always telling you their interpretation of the facts. And so um, we, I just, it's a good time in, in the history of Preston City Bible Church to remind ourselves that nobody here needs to be the news anchor. I'm not the news anchor. I'm fully, fully clothed. I'm wearing my pants, not seated behind a desk, reading something someone else wrote very professionally. I'm not, I'm not that, and I'm not the person to share all the information. But you know, all of you tell me stuff. All of you tell me stuff. Some of you have heard your story come up hopefully months or years later in a sermon that no one would ever know it was you. Because I'll say, well, one time I was talking to a friend, this happened. I haven't lost a lot of friends doing that, so I think it's okay. But anyway, um, what what I'm trying to say is you you confide in me, you tell me things, I'm your pastor. And uh, what a horror if I'm running around telling the things that you would confide in me as someone that you trust who is thinking of God's interest for you and mindful not only of your struggles, but of my own struggles and how there really is no one-upmanship in this Christian life. There's no, well, I'm at least not struggling with what she's dealing with. See, only mature Christians that understand that there is nobody good but Jesus really are good candidates for your confidence because they'll talk and it hurts and it's devastating. And I, you know, I can't really describe all the ways that slander and gossip are devastating, but if you haven't been on the receiving end of this in a while, maybe it's not real fresh to you. But if you did some meditation, you did some thinking, some reflecting on what that was like when that happened, you will, you'll be where you need to be to motivate yourself never to do this. I want to also charge Preston City Bible Church with an awesome, awesome privilege of shutting down gossip and or slander whenever you hear it. I was doing this yesterday with some young Christians. person with whom I was uh, dealing was under the age of 10. Not mine. (laughs) But it could have been. I treated him like mine. I treated him like his mom and dad were there and it would have been what they would have done had they been there. You know, that's how you deal with other people's kids is you imagine if their, their parents were there and then you deal with it and then you tell them. So that's, that's how you deal with, with other people's children, by the way. You don't pretend like nothing happened. You deal with it and you deal with it like their parents are there and then you talk to the parents about it because that's just loving one another, right? But, but I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some gossip. I'm like, hey, wait a second. What, what just happened? Oh, I was just talking about so-and-so. Well, and so just very quickly, do you imagine what would happen if so-and-so talked about you? You know? Well, well that person's this and that. Okay, do you, do you think you fully see yourself? Are you, are you not this and that also at times to somebody? And if, and see, I'm being very generic when I'm talking about it, but this, anything you can say about someone else, you probably can find yourself guilty of if you think about it, right? And so tell on yourself, I'm a sinner saved by grace, right? 
but, but don't talk about other people. And when you hear, I mean, in a, in a gossiping sense, and when you hear gossip, don't spread it. Now, here's the horror of gossip. Here's the horror of gossip. If we have a culture where you can never tell anyone anything because you're so afraid of people talking about you, then no one can ever know you're in the hospital. No one can ever know that you're going in for a procedure. No one can ever know. I know of one situation <laughs> where the suggestion was made that you're going in for this, this medical condition because of some spiritual flaw in you. So we pulled a Job's friends, Eliphaz and, uh, uh, not El- yeah, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Zophar, the Takinamanite. He's such a loser. Because he's going to tell Job, you're suffering because of some sin you committed. Did you see me commit a sin? No, I see you suffering. And therefore, I can reason back to your sin. And that's the self-righteousness that every one of us will infect ourselves with before we start holding forth on other people's shortcomings. And that will destroy Christian fellowship. And here's how it does it. Nobody talks to anybody. Nobody knows what's going on with anyone because there will be this assumption that I'm sinful. Hey, you know what? Let's settle that. I assume it. You're sinful. (laughs) Love hopes all things, though. Love believes all things. I'm expecting that despite your struggle against your sin nature, you're in general saying no to sin, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. In general, you're saying when you commit personal sin, you're confessing it. If you're in a pattern like David got into where he can't see his sin, then God is going to show it to you through one of us, perhaps, or just life circumstances. But my assumption is that God's working with you and that you're, you're in this struggle and that it's right for me to pray for you. It's right for us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so the fear of gossip and the fear of judgment and the fear of, of self-righteousness is so horribly devastating to any kind of Christian fellowship that we all have to, in our hearts, say that will not be tolerated. We're not going to express self-righteous judgmentalism on one another. We're not going to gossip about one another. So that when, got to use you, Jerry, when Jerry goes into the hospital for a surgery for a condition that they hadn't quite figured out yet, but they're going to remove it, (laughs) whatever it is. Jerry doesn't mind me sharing that much, I hope. No more. But when Jerry goes in, nobody in this church says, uh-huh, yeah, we don't know what he was doing, but he must have been doing something. Nobody's going to say that. Everyone's going to weep when we weep. We're going to rejoice when we rejoice. And we're not going to conjecture beyond the Scriptures. In fact, the Scriptures say don't do that. We've got a whole book on not conjecturing called the book of Job. So when Jerry says, I praise the Lord despite the suffering, we rejoice with him and agree And I doubt not that the choirs of angels in heaven praise God on Jerry's account because of his faith, because they're intently looking into these things. So as Jerry walks in dependence on God the Holy Spirit to trust him through his suffering, we all rejoice. And that's how you deal with Christian suffering. Well, what if if Jerry was involved in something? That's not my problem. That's not your problem. We all need to become very well aware of what we do know and what we can't know. And this is the evil. This is the evil of part of the evil of Christian mysticism is trying to kind of squint your eyes a little bit and I can kind of figure it out. You can't figure it out. You don't know what you don't know. And that's so helpful. This is, Americans should know this. We actually teach mathematics. 
we have all had to either make a C on the exam or go back and check all of our answers and change half of the answers when we found a mistake. Or maybe that was me. But I, that's how I got through all the mathematics I did was I had to check everything I did three times because I make mistakes, little details, little things I get wrong. And if there's a problem in my logical stuff with something easy like math, oh my goodness, and something complex like dealing with people, of course we're going to make mistakes. Of course we're going to miss things. So this is the last thing I want to say about gossip and slander. Half the time I think you gossip, it is slander, because you can't really know all that you're saying. You might be sharing something that isn't true in terms of the motivation of the person. Can you believe she said that or she did that? Well, you're saying something about the person's character that may not be true because you don't know all the details and you don't know half the details to make that determination. And so whose place do I take? When I make that, when I do that to someone, whose place am I assuming? God's place. Do I have a place in the Bible that says that's a big no-no for Christians in the church age spiritual life? I mean, there's lots about gossip in Proverbs and, and, uh, and, and people opposed to us in Psalms, but where in the Bible does it say, do not make yourself your brother's judge? Romans 14, let's look at it real quick. Romans 14, back from Ephesians to Romans Now, this is going to be a fun one because, uh, <laughs> because you're not supposed to be judging this person. Listen to it. Now, accept, welcome, receive the one who is weak in the faith. Weak in faith. Well, how do you know that? Well, you know her problem. She's weak in faith. <laughs> you don't necessarily know it, but it is true. Romans 14. Welcome the one who is weak in faith. They are that whether you judge them to be so or not. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Okay, so God, this is too hard. This is for somebody like me. So you tell me they're weak in the faith, which means they have wrong opinions. And then I'm not supposed to evaluate their opinions and tell them they're wrong. That's awful. Come on. See, this is like in 1 Peter 3, wives whose husbands are disobedient, they're going to win him over by doing the opposite of what very often feels like the thing to do, which is to tell him it's wrong and fix him. And you're not going to do it with a word, you do it without a word. Here, you're going to welcome this person and you're going to provide a context, a safe context, like parents with their loving children, that kind of safe context for them to figure it out. You're not going to figure it for them. Now, see, this is, the, this is that good old thing about how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? One. But the light bulb really has to want to change. See, therapists know this. The psychologists, uh, the clinical therapy, they, they know that you can't just tell the person the truth. Hey, this is where you're wrong, wrong, wrong. And this is the right answer to all these things. They can probably know it after two or three visits. But it's going to take 50 visits for that person to kind of come to the conclusion herself and see things as they are. That's what, that's, that's what that is about. That's what that's all about. It's, and I'm not saying you need to go do that. I'm saying that, that you need to think the thought yourself. You can't just be told what to think. 
Now, we are, throughout the scriptures, told what to think, like don't welcome the person weak in faith to, in, in order to pass judgment on their opinions, just welcome them. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things. The other person uh, who is weak only eats vegetables. So, definitely not me. The other person, weaker in faith, is going to live longer to figure it out, though. <laughs> the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him okay so you can't play this um, dietary one-upsmanship who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand I think that's the Lord Jesus, and I think he's talking about exactly the same thing in, in Hebrews, that he, our priest, lives forever to make intercession on our behalf, as we saw also in Romans 8. One person regards one day above another, another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does, not, does so for the Lord. He who gives thanks, uh, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. See, the motivation behind the action is the issue on doubtful things. We'll call these doubtful things, like whether or not today has to be the day that we worship. It's not right for those Sunday night services that people work on uh, Saturday morning, Saturday evening services for those that have to go into work on Sunday. That's wrong because you're supposed to make it the Lord's day because he was raised on the third day, the third day, which was the first day of the week. So Sunday has to be the day that we worship God. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. And that now, now let's back it up to Sabbath and feasts and those kinds of calendar things, new moon festivals and all these things. Every day, is, <laughs> every day is in the light of the resurrection of Jesus for me, but for some people it's a really big deal what day uh, it is and how they're serving God on what particular day. But he says... I. I'm doing what I'm doing for God. The other person's doing what he's doing in giving thanks to God. This is a doubtful area of individual conviction. We're not supposed to pass judgment on this. That's really hard to do. But see, this is your parameters. This, if you'll embrace this, if we will say this is our code, our ethical code for how we treat one another, we can actually do wonderful things together. But it's the only way. It's the only way all of you from your different perspectives, backgrounds, understandings will ever get together to do anything to do anything like share the love of Jesus Christ with people from a different culture just down the street. Not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself in verse 7. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? See, this this attitude of self-righteousness is just your sin nature showing. Your slip is showing, that, you know, back in the old days, the lady's slip would, would show, and somebody, hey, I can see your slip, which means, I guess, it's a little bit lower than the bottom hem of your skirt, so I have to go make an adjustment, and now it's not showing anymore. Your self-righteousness is showing. We all struggle with it. It's a problem for everyone. Everybody thinks he's better than the other person because he understands. Now, that manifests itself in different ways, some people will never say a word because they're right and they don't have to give the person any of their time. And that's self-righteous. The other person's like, oh, I've got to fix everyone. It's such a wonderful world. I have all these nails and I'm the hammer and I'm going to hit them all. 
And, that, and that's a different kind of self-righteousness, but everyone, that's just, I'm just saying, your sin nature's showing. We're struggling with this. So we don't give in to the sin nature, and we certainly don't gossip uh, or slander or bring about any kind of trouble. Um, let me go back to Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness, that's the inner motivation for these behaviors, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander all those attitude things issue forth in what you say. Slander. Be put away from you along with all malice. In the army, we used to say everyone's a safety officer. What does that mean? Well, it means on the range, the, the private second class or whatever, the, let's see, you have the E1 and E2, that E2 kid that has barely even ever touched a rifle yet, okay? If he sees someone else's muzzle on the range, because the range, everybody's supposed to face muzzles up and down range. If he sees somebody going this way with a rifle because it's an E4 who's being lazy and sloppy and, um, and this is how we have range accidents. If he sees someone start to do this, then he's supposed to scream or shout out, manly, Hey, uh, uh, you know, safety violation, range is cold, um, you know, uh, weapons down. He's supposed to shout, stop. Now, there's a sergeant major up in the tower, or probably somebody working for a sergeant major. I'm sorry, it'd be, it'd be a sergeant first class up in the tower, training a lieutenant <laughs> to, uh, to make sure the range is safe, and he's the range safety. But that kid on the line saw the offense, saw someone do something unsafe, and he is now the safety officer. Everyone's a safety officer because he saw it, and he called it, and he said, that's not right. Now, this is the other side of don't judge your brother, don't pass judgment on his opinions, the weaker believer. Everyone here can spot gossip. Everyone here can see slander when it's happening, and everyone here needs to say, hey, 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 I don't know if you see what's happening, but you shouldn't do that. Anyone of you can say that to me. We can be able to say that to each other. And here's what should be the response if I forget myself and I start talking about something I shouldn't talk about. I mean, it's thought, unbelievable thought that I would ever do that, right? Because I'm a perfectly spiritually mature person, right? So I never use my mouth in the wrong way, right? Yeah, right. So, so what, like, God forbid that I should say something that I shouldn't say about someone else. And uh, you... Jacob, you call me out. Now, the way you do it, Jacob's a wise young man. He's wise beyond his years. And he doesn't say, stand up in front of the whole church like Paul did to Peter. You got to stop that, Pastor Dave. He says, Pastor Dave, I want to talk to you. This is, by the way, the best way for the shortest trip back to right for me. But he says, hey, um, did you hear what you just said? I don't think you should say that. Immediately, my first response is going to be, those of you who know me, some sort of paroxysm in my face and be like, you know, <laughs> you know I, who are you, right? That would be my first thought. And uh, my first thought's usually a misfire. It, it happens. And uh, especially when I'm sinful. And then, and then, of course, then I come back to myself and I'll say, thank you, you're right, I'm so embarrassed. And then I want to run away because I'm embarrassed, right? Because if you saw it, that means that everyone else saw it and you had the guts to say it and I don't want to be around here anymore and and so now it's just, there, there's that. But my ultimate response to someone telling me you're wrong and uh, that's bad is what? What's my ultimate comeback? Thank you. I forgot myself. 
I shouldn't be saying things I shouldn't say. You're absolutely right. Thank you. That needs to be the response that is the response of record. And we can say, well, I didn't do well at first and I had to you know, bounce back. But the ultimate response is the, the blows of a, of a friend are faithful. Somebody that loves me and hurts me is hurting me for my good. And that's, a, that's the necessary thing. And that's the attitude, again, we need to have as a church. We need to actually shut down gossip and slander whenever we see it. Anyone needs to be able to do that. So that we're free to actually tell each other what we're dealing with. Now, the other side of shutting down gossip and slander I've seen can be we never talk about anything ever, ever, ever. Did you know so-and-so is in the hospital? Oh, don't gossip. And, and there's a maturity about knowing where the line is sometimes. Sometimes you have to know what to share about someone and, not, and what not to share. And you don't go past what, what, and where is that? How do you know what to say about me to someone else? Yeah. Yeah, when, it, when you think he isn't going to like that. And he, when it gets back to him, and it does, when it gets back to him, he's going to say, what? <laughs> I wasn't even, I didn't even have my... I didn't even go in the arena and y'all are punching me, right? When the other person says, that's not something that I'm comfortable you talking about without me there or with me there. So you gotta have, you know, when I'm talking about Rodney, Rodney's hand right here in my mind. And I'm looking over Rodney, he's like, yeah, yeah, right? That's how I, that's how I think about it. Boy, do I talk about you behind your back, Rod. We talk about you in, <laughs> we talk about you in the prayer meeting. You know, it's, and, and, uh, and I'm thankful we do because we've all been praying for you. So, so this is the deal. This is the deal. If you're going to be Christian and walk by the Spirit, and we're going to have a Christian fellowship where we actually love one another, there has to be an avoidance of lying. There has to be an avoidance of self-righteous gossip and judging. And so verse 32, be kind to one another. Summary command, be kind to one another. Fruit of the Spirit, kindness, be kind to one another. What does that mean? What's the technical meaning of the word kind? You don't need to worry about technical. You need to just be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Can I translate that from the Greek? Eusplontinon. Good-gutted toward one another. Good bowels. Isn't that nice? I'll stick with tender-hearted. Because that's what it means in English. In English, we think of the heart as the seat of emotions physically. Uh, in our English parlance. So we'll say, um, and that's what it means, affections. Your affections are, are kind towards someone else. I, I, have, I have good affections toward you. Now, that is a command of feeling. That is a command. You are commanded to feel a certain way toward one another. And that is hard for Americans to accept because we want, we've bought this romantic ideal that uh, feelings are the thing that controls us. We even call it emotion. It makes us do the things we do instead of feelings are the consequence of our thoughts. But if you hold yourself responsible to be affected kindly toward one another, you know what you can do? You can be that. You can be tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. The word forgiving is, um, is from the word grace, charizomai to grace the, the other person out, to extend the grace of God you've received to someone else. That's the idea. Forgive sometimes is afiemi, to let go, to release. Here it means to 
And it's another, it's a synonym for afiemi. It means to give grace, to extend grace to someone. It's a positive way. Negatively, it's a letting go. Positively, it's an extending of grace. Give grace to the other person. You can do that because of 518. You have the Holy Spirit working in you. You can actually forgive by extending grace toward the other person. And how, how, to what standard, what model do I have? Uh, just as God in Christ Jesus also has forgiven you. You can do this toward the other because you've already received this. You've seen a perfect example. So we always say it's not about you. As I close this little family Bible time, it's not about you. It's about God, right? And it's not about what you think. It's about what God says. And um, bar one political pundit, facts don't care about your feelings. And um, so, so the, the ideas, I, I stand behind all of these ideas um, but the command to be affected kindly is something you can actually do. So the facts direct your feelings. The facts direct your feelings. And if you're not going to focus on self as the source, you can go from God's perspective to look at self and see how God has treated you. And this is how you do think about self. We do have to look at ourselves. It's a self-evaluation. Look at yourself in, 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 in as objective a perspective as you can to see your sinfulness. And then remember Jesus paid for all that because he wanted a relationship with you and now you have it. And that, that sense should never really leave you. It's very hard to be self-righteous when you're aware of your sin and the great poverty and your great need that God has saved you by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his grace alone. It's very hard to be gracious and self-righteous in the same moment. In fact, I don't think you can. I think you can have a grace perspective from the spirit of God using the word to fill you, or you can be self-righteous because you're full of self. And uh, so these are some of the implications that we're teasing out here in the close down of the Christian spiritual life. And so the command, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and so walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, for his worship of you and his obedience, for the privilege we have to walk worthy of our calling as we study today about not violating the sacred trust of knowing about one another. Father, let this church family know one another. Let us know what is going on in the household with compassion, with kindness, with long-suffering, with understanding, truly bearing the fruit of the Spirit as a, as a group, Father. Let us be forgiving and not slandering. Let us not seek to one-up one another and compete with one another, but raise up one another. Bear one another's burdens. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.